Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas, and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers, and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts, and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links, and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates, or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 198 of Impact Boom. My name is Carly Daly, and I'm passionate about supporting women's mental health during the postnatal period, education, and social enterprise. Today, we are speaking with Helena Norberg-Hodge. Author and filmmaker Helena Norberg-Hodge is the founder and director of Local Futures. A pioneer of the new economy movement, she's been promoting an economics of personal, social and ecological well-being for more than 30 years. She is the producer and co-director of the award-winning documentary The Economics of Happiness. She has authored several books, including the inspirational classic Ancient Futures, Learning from Ladakh. And Local is Our Future, Steps to an Economics of Happiness. Helena has given public lectures in seven languages and has appeared in broadcast, print and online media worldwide, including MSNBC, The London Times, The Sydney Morning Herald and The Guardian. She was honoured with the Right Livelihood Award for her groundbreaking work in Ladakh and received the 2012 Goy Peace Prize for contributing to the revitalisation of cultural and biological diversity and the strengthening of local communities and economies worldwide. Helena, thank you very much for joining us. I'm happy to be here. (laughs) Brilliant. Um, You have such an impressive bio. Wondering if you could share a bit more about your background and what led you to your work with Local Futures? Yeah, it was, uh, I think the significant thing about my background is that I was quite globalized already as a young person. My family was mainly Swedish, but I had a German grandfather and an English grandmother on, on the other side. And I ended up studying and living in different countries, including America. Later on, I became very interested in languages and i I found that learning them, the best thing was to be in the country. So I lived for a while in in France, in Italy, in Mexico to learn Spanish. So I'd seen quite a lot of the world, and I think that's had a big impact on my thinking. But the the biggest thing that crystallized it all was when I was invited to go to a place called Ladakh or Little Tibet. It's Mm. the westernmost part of the Tibetan plateau, but it's a part of Tibet that belongs politically to India. And in 1975, I was living in Paris and I was asked to work as part of a German film team to do an anthropological documentary about these people who had never been exposed to the Western culture, to the modern world, and they hadn't been colonized either. And missionaries who had tried to go there earlier, hundreds of years earlier, hadn't had much of an impact on the culture. So it was a very fascinating opportunity to experience a culture that was still independent and free and in charge, where people were in charge of their own lives. And I 
yeah, I just totally fell in love with the people and the place. And when the filming was finished, I ended up staying. And it was many years of working with the people, essentially to try to avoid that the community, ecological and spiritual values of their indigenous culture mm. wouldn't be destroyed by modernity. So I, I had, yeah, I've had now actually 45 years of experience uh, with that culture. And later on, in the 80s, I was invited to work in Bhutan, and I, I wrote a book called Ancient Futures, as I think you mentioned, and that was, it ended up along with the film being translated into more than 40 languages. Yeah. And from that, I had contact with so many different groups around the world. And all of it ended up being a big, big lesson in why it is we need to strengthen community as the number one priority and how important it is that in order to do that, we shift away from a, an economy where everything has to get bigger and faster and more competitive and more global towards supporting more localized economies, or at least supporting a shift in direction towards yeah. localizing rather than continuing to globalize. Yeah, totally. And I think um, on that, I listened to your Christchurch TEDx talk, and you talk about that long distance drone economy. I really like that term, creating blindness. Um, and I was wondering if you can explain a bit more about that. Like, what what is this blindness um, from your perspective? Yeah, um, basically, I'm seeing that whether you're a consumer or an investor or a CEO of a big company, it's become impossible to really know the impact of your actions because through a process of continued support for global trade, um, which our governments have been engaged in really from the beginnings of the modern economy. Uh, so um, supporting global trade all the time has meant that people are involved in activities on the other side of the world where they have no idea of the impact. Mm. And, you know, you can be sitting in Australia and thinking that you're doing something really good, helping a microcredit project in India. But actually, what that project often has done is to take people away from a land-based, self-reliant economy into borrowing money to start a business. And it's all been a process of urbanization and destruction of a type of, yeah, essentially a more sustainable economy and yeah. more independence. And so with the long distances, we become blinder and blinder. And when you're trying to do the right thing as a shopper, I mean, you could spend days in the supermarket trying to read everything on the label, but even then, you know you're not getting the real story. Yes. So, it, you know, what we found is that, particularly around food, it's incredibly important to start very actively and very urgently to strengthen local food economies. Uh, because the global food economy right now means that the same products are being exported and imported. Mm -hmm. So the U.S. routinely imports about a billion tons of beef, 
And guess what? They export about a billion tons of beef. Yeah. UK exports as much milk and butter as they import. And it's, you know, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of tons. And we're having, you know, it's not hundreds of thousands, but right now, Australia imports, uh, exports 20 tons of bottled water to the UK, and the UK exports 20 tons of bottled water to Australia. Mm. It's very, it's very interesting that these numbers are often sort of equal, but when you understand it better, you see it's because we've ended up supporting global traders to the detriment of local businesses. And if we all ate food from our country or our region, no multinationals would make money. Yeah. But hundreds, if not millions of, of um, people and I mean, hundreds of millions or even billions of people would benefit by supporting smaller, more localized businesses that deliver in the region. And you can actually see in many cases in the local food movement, you know, you can visit the farm, you can see how they grow the food, you really have full knowledge and full information. Yeah. Wow. It's so, you know, you, you think about it from the perspective of, oh, um, you know, bad things, um, war, etc. that kind of blindness. But actually for you to talk about people trying to help other people in other countries, but that being a bit blind as well, if you don't really understand what you're giving money to or what, you're, what cause you're actually trying to support. Yeah. 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 Um, and, yeah. yeah. It's become it's becoming more and more urgent that we understand that better. And which, by the way, paradoxically, it's leading to why we encourage people who really want to understand the state of the world today and want to really do something. Mm. We actually encourage them to think of traveling, particularly between the global north and global south. You know, not to travel as part of this mass tourism, which is so destructive, but to travel to collaborate and learn. And we see this communication between the so-called undeveloped, more land-based rural communities, traditional cultures, and the modern urban industrial world as more important than ever that we have more accurate information Mm. because we're getting all kinds of misleading messages that mean that we often end up on the wrong side of, of the issues. Yeah. Um, I think if we talk for a second about your documentary, The Economics of Happiness, um, and we've spoken a little bit about that long-distance food pre- preparation and benefits for the local economies, now that we're, you know, eight years on from the film's release, are we any closer to what this economy of happiness looks like to you? Like are, are we seeing the impact in the way that you hoped this documentary might bring about? Yes, I would say that I'm very, very pleased with the impact the documentary has had. And I'm, I'm just so, on a daily basis, I do get about as much good news in my inbox <laughs> as I get bad news. And it's because we help to catalyze or strengthen um, many of these localization initiatives around the world, especially around local food. And that moment is growing, and it's growing really rapidly, yeah. and it is nothing like enough. Yeah. You know, there's a huge need for much more awareness, 
and for really you know massive mobilization in this direction mm. um we you know we're sort of well we're very aware that we have crises now we're aware you know in a place like australia right now the urgency in terms of climate but we're getting uh our information in such a way that we end up very often uh doing things like for instance lobbying that so-called poor governments shouldn't have to lower their emissions mm. as rapidly as rich countries and this was a hugely sponsored message from big business because in the last 30 years the huge industries have moved to poor countries because that's where cheap labor is available and they were putting the factories there that are making our shoes that are you know factory farming growing our food um and there they needed to use lots of fossil fuels and dramatically pollute countries like china and india Mm. So we really need to be very well informed right now the bigger picture so we can immediately get on with genuine systemic solutions. Yeah, totally. And I think um I mean I just also do want to stress that um I wouldn't worry at all about the state of the world if it weren't for the fact that in the support for global trade our governments are not only supporting giant corporations and supermarkets in this insane trade what we call insane trade which includes routinely not just importing and exporting the same thing but sending apples to be washed on the other side of the world and flying them back again mm. sending for instance Tasmania flies scallops to be peeled in China flying them back again Norway flies fish to be boned in China flying it back again This is going on on a massive scale mm. and yet we're not talking about it. You know, it's not a secret, it's not a bunch of bad people sitting in a dark room plotting to destroy the world, but what it is is that our economic system has become so big and global that almost no one is looking at the contours and the workings of that system. Yeah. So that's really really urgent. and part of that deregulation for global trade has included deregulating finance so that now we have <clears throat> private financial institutions and banks essentially driving a casino economy in which they create more and more money out of thin air through hedge funds speculation and every day people around the world buying their bread buying their food their currency their lives are being profoundly affected by this casino mm. but unfortunately you know again most people aren't looking at it yeah. for that reason i feel a, a real sense of urgency because that casino is still continuing and very often as we look for solutions we're looking far too much just at the individual at the you know we must drive our car we must recycle our plastic and we're not looking at the systemic ways that we really could make a difference as communities and at the policy level yeah so because that casino is still continuing i feel a sense of urgency but i have to tell you i see this spontaneous really 
very heartening way in which people are waking up and starting these localization initiatives. It's quite a spontaneous thing, even when they don't know about the global economy. There is such a longing for community and connection to nature, to recover that sense of being spiritually deeply connected. And so that's happening. It's just that we urgently need to clarify, spell out, and you know, we need what I call big picture activism very urgently. Yeah, and so with like, yeah, it's like people people are waking up, but a little bit too slowly, I guess. Um, so then, what what is your advice to people that want to be part of this systemic change, but they just they don't know where to start? Yeah, well, my I guess my message is, please look at organisations like mine. There are others. We're part of networks, um, but we are still a relatively small group of organizations that are trying to get people to look beyond these sort of individual solutions, which, by the way, have been promoted by big business. And not only have the solutions been promoted by big business, but there's a huge dominant narrative out there that is so misleading. It's basically saying, oh, these people, they were told about climate change. They were told not to drive their car. They were told not to get into an airplane and to recycle their plastic bags. Why have they not listened? What's wrong with these people? They're in denial, aren't they? Let's spend a lot of time looking at the psychology of these people because there's something wrong with them. They're just not changing their individual behavior. And I'm afraid this narrative is being incorporated by many environmental organizations that aren't seeing the big picture. So the end result is pointing the finger at individuals who are trapped in a system where their taxes are used to subsidize the global trade, subsidize the situation where it's extremely difficult for them to get out of their car. Mm. You know, it's subsidizing not only the use of the car and the advertising and the promotion, but making public transport more and more inconvenient etc etc yeah totally these poor people are full of self-guilt and self-blame at the same time as they're feeling this sense of urgency and panic so i you know i want to ask people who hear this podcast please look at this differently do listen to voices like ours that can show you how this focus on the individual is very counterproductive of course, when you can, do what you can as an individual. But we need to open the picture, the big picture, to see we need systemic change. Yes. How would you as an individual create systemic change? Well, you can do it by linking up at the local level to start creating those local community systems that can start bringing the economy home. It can happen much more rapidly than you think. I'm amazed at how much has been accomplished by community, you know, local food initiatives. And thank God there are some local governments and even some regional governments now that are beginning to support this. Yeah. But until now, no national governments. Yeah. So that's another area we have to look at, not the conventional politics. We need to go beyond this focus on the individual and the theater of politics to understanding the big picture, 
which is that the real power, the real political power, has now moved outside of the national boundaries. It's in the hands of the globalized media, in the hands of globalized casino, globalized, you know, food economies. And we need to be understanding that and getting the word out as quickly as we can. Let's get beyond this theater of left and right. Let's get on with building a people's movement that is so awake and so aware that it demands the change. Yeah. We've got to mobilize people. But remember that what you're going to be mobilizing them for is to do something that you can start doing right now and you can feel so much more empowered and see the impact of what you do if you join the systemic movement towards localized economies, community-based economies. You've said so many amazing things, but you're actually going to speak at um, the New Kind Conference. So as a speaker at New Kind Conference in Marion Bay, Tasmania in January, what are you most excited about? Well, I'm most excited about the community that's building around New Kind. I'm very impressed with the people I met there last year. And I think, again, people who joined that, which is a big picture approach to activism, very much involving the community building, and a deeper, broader understanding of what's going on in the world. Yeah. People came away so energized, so, you know, joining a way of life and feeling, even when they go back and stay in their normal job, they have contact with like-minded people, and they're able to do things even on a volunteer basis, or perhaps starting to do part-time work inside the local economy movement, which can sometimes even pay you something, but very often it will involve a type of volunteerism. Yeah. And it's such a meaningful volunteerism that, you know, people just feel, you know, really energized and happier. Yeah, it's definitely the energy I think that um, people take away, this renewed sense of purpose, I think. So on that, um, do you have some social enterprises that you know of that you think are doing a great job tackling social, cultural or environmental problems? Well, I guess I have to say that most of the ones that I love have been civic society initiatives like setting up new farmers markets, setting up community-supported agriculture schemes, and most of them actually end up being economically beneficial to a very large number of people. Mm. In the social enterprise movement, there are also some good things in many ways, once we start localizing economies, we're talking about a part of decommercialization. To finish off, you are an author yourself, and we'd love to know what books or resources you would recommend to our listeners. Well, I would so recommend that they come to our website, uh, localfutures.org, because we have lots of we have blogs, we have book lists, we have uh, you know also sort of toolkits. Uh, to get started on, on this thinking. And our film itself is a big and really good educational tool. Yeah. So, and we have books, you know, and, and articles by other people. 
Perfect. So I think that's where people should go. <laughs> Great. For people interested in seeing Helena speak this coming January at Newkind, we have a special coupon code just for Impact Boom listeners. Use Impact Boom for 20% off Newkind tickets from www.newkindconference.com. Helena, thank you very much for your generous insights and time. It has been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you. Thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter.